Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and today we are continuing our last chronological Disneyland story, which started off explaining how George Lucas and Steven Spielberg ended up in the Disney parks. But before we do that, James, speaking of being in the parks, I've been in the Magic Kingdom for the last few days, and it's been very interesting there to see how Disney's handling spring break crowds. Okay, do tell. I remember back in January, we saw an influx of tourists to Walt Disney World far beyond what we had expected to see for that time of the year. Mm -hmm. This caught us by surprise. Our crowd calendar numbers were off. You could see online people were very, very surprised at not only the number of people that were in the parks, but the wait times at the attractions. Well, one of the ideas that we got in our heads was that maybe this wasn't entirely due to a larger than normal number of people visiting the parks. Maybe Disney was trying to cut down on ride capacity, right? Ooh. To save some money. Okay. And the way that you determine that is, the way that we determine that anyway, is that we put people at the exits of key rides and we counted how many people came out. So for example, if we estimate that Pirates of the Caribbean can handle 2,800 people an hour, what we do is we put somebody at the exit to Pirates of the Caribbean and we count how many people come out over a given hour. And if it's reasonably close to 2,800, give or take a little bit because of wheelchairs and, and other things, you know, then we say that the ride is running at full capacity. But if the ride is running at 1,400 people an hour, we know something is off, right? Mm -hmm. We started this back on February 15th. And back on February 15th, we did notice that there were a number of attractions that were not running at anywhere close to full capacity. And I'm talking about things like Space Mountain, Seven Doors Mine Train, other attractions like that. But this week, which is, I guess, the first week of college spring breaks, every ride that we've looked at has been running as close to capacity as it reasonably can. So it looks like, and this is my operating theory here, back in January, Disney tried to see if it could cut capacity and save some money on rides, but it soon found out that it can't cut ride capacity because the lines get really, really long. But here's the interesting thing. Now that Disney's running the rides at full capacity day after day after day, I'm starting to see a lot of ride breakdowns. Mm -hmm. So for example, yesterday when I was at the Magic Kingdom, Pirates was down for a, a normal refurbishment. They're getting rid of the redhead, but Space Mountain was down. TTA was down. Big Thunder didn't even open with the park and it was down most of the day. Splash went down at some point. And I had heard that there was some problem with character greeting access where if you walked up to the entrance to one of the character greetings, so whether it's you know Princess Fairy Tale Hall or Ariel's Grotto attraction, the wait sign said 15 minutes. The cast member at front was telling you more like 45. Oof. And again, the same thing happened today. It was at the Magic Kingdom. You saw Space Mountain again go, go down today. And I'm wondering, what is it that causes problems when Disney has to run the rides at close to 100% capacity day after day. I mean, we know that if Space Mountain is built for 1,800 people an hour max, why can't it run at 100% of capacity day after day? Is it that there's no ride system in the world that is that reliable? Like fundamentally, is a roller coaster just not that reliable? Or is there some other reason for this? A couple of things going on here. First of all, not to lay this at the feet of Bob Chapek, the gentleman who's in charge of Disney parks and resorts. But remember, Bob came out of the consumer products world. And mm -hmm. I have been hearing a number of stories lately about Bob that talk about how the teams, for example, who are working on so many of the projects for Epcot mm -hmm. find themselves spending dollars to chase pennies, that Bob is one of these guys who's 
very, very interested in efficiencies. One wonders if there have been cuts made to maintenance. Right now, the resort is in the middle of this huge expansion. Right. If you think about what's going on at Galaxy's Edge, or for example, just this past week, we saw as part of the Oscars the debut of the first promotions for Toy Story Land. And these are very, very expensive projects to get up out of the ground and promote. And what concerns me is that this sort of attitude, we have to save money somewhere. And I want to stress here that, you know, I have not heard anything about maintenance cutbacks. I've just heard about Bob's emphasis on we have to keep costs down. We have to, you know, to rein right. this stuff in. But remember that the last time this happened, anybody who's going to work at Disneyland back in the, the 90s will remember T. Irby. And he's the gentleman who eventually got the big thunder accident hung around his neck. Likewise, that horrible incident involving the Columbia where the cleat came loose from the dock and flew into the crowd and killed a guy. Right. It's always kind of a dangerous situation when things get out of balance. But at the same time, you have to appreciate from Chapek's point of view, there is so much construction going on a property, whether it's the Skyliner or it's Ratatouille or making sure that Galaxy's Edge and Toy Story Land are open in time. It's always difficult to get this in just the right balance. It's not like they didn't know that they yeah. were going to have crowd show for spring break. And so let's make sure that we're on top of our maintenance because you don't want to be somebody who's paid the money it costs now to get into a Disney park for the day and be walking from attraction to attraction. And go, I'm sorry, we're down. Come back in a half hour. I'm sorry. Well, that, that's exactly it. So in between the, the thing that I was doing, you know, timing wait times at the rides, mm -hmm. I was escorting a group of four family friends around the park. So I laid out a touring plan for them and they were only there for two days. So they had bought a two day park hopper ticket, which I think it was $264 a person. Mm. So they get to the Magic Kingdom and, you know, immediately, well, Pirates is closed, which I understand. But then, mm -hmm. you know, Big Thunder goes down, Splash Mountain goes down, Space Mountain goes down, TTA was down. You know, at some point, all the character greetings were significantly longer waits than expected. At one o'clock, when all of these rides were down, they actually gave up after lunch. Oh, by the way, you actually can't get into any of the restaurants without a reservation because the park is so full and there's not enough capacity for dining in the park. So at one o'clock after they had eaten lunch, they actually went over to the studios to try and get a couple rides in, hoping to come back to the Magic Kingdom later on and that the rides would be up. And I actually looked at we were walking past guest relations on the way out and I actually looked at guest relations figuring if the line isn't long, I might ask for a refund. Given that the kids are only here for two days, we've basically lost the better part of a day in the Magic Kingdom because the rides are down. Something has to happen here, right? This doesn't feel like there was good value for money here. But Jim, the line, the line of guest relations was so long that the kids could have gone to the studios, written everything, and come back, and they still would have been in line at guest relations. It was the literally the line was long enough that it was like I can't sit in another line just to argue with someone about whether I got one hundred thirty-two dollars worth of money out of this pass. It was just. It was frustrating all around. I am so sorry to hear that. And you as the park vet, where you're in a situation like that, you're walking around the park and seeing that you've got these 
people eaters of attractions going down and you you, you know the cascade effect you know what's happening oh, to yeah. all of the other lines inside of that park because these people have to go oh. somewhere I told Laurel, when Pirates was down and Big Thunder was down, Mm -hmm. Splash was down, but not only down, but down enough that they turned off the water to it. So you know that something was up there. It was like, if this was July, Mm -hmm. we would be one Australian accent away from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome here. (laughs) Because people would be that mad, right? Would be one Foster's beer and some some leather straps away from Uh. (laughs) redoing Mel Gibson's best movie ever. And the lines, Jim, the lines at Pecos Bills, it was it was chaos mm-hmm. at Pecos Bills because people get over there sort of early afternoon mm-hmm. and there's all of the big attractions on that side of the park were down. The line to get into Haunted Mansion stretched out of Liberty Square. It was that, that was, because it was the only the only headliner ride on that side of the park that was open. Oh, wow. it was crazy. Crazy. Jeez. Yeah. And I felt bad for the kids. Oh no, 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 definitely. And those kids go home and tell their friends about their visit to Walt Disney World where this ride was down, this ride was down, this ride was down. And they would have. But here's the thing that here's the thing that actually saved it. They came back and saw Happily Ever After last uh, night. Okay. And I'm not gonna say it made up for it, but it that was the end of their trip to Walt Disney World and they, they really, really liked it. And they also liked the two or three things they wanted at the studios. But they saw Happily Ever After. None of them had ever seen it before. They loved it. But still, it shouldn't have to come to that, right? You shouldn't have to have it, it shouldn't come to that, and I'll leave it at that. We'll move on. Well, but thank you to entertainment, because sometimes that's a saver. And the fact that you can entertain that many people that thoroughly at that point of the night. Yeah. Send them happily up Main Street into the Emporium, where they, they spend twice as much as what they spent for tickets on throw rugs or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they were, I mean, like I said, they were thrilled with Happily Ever After. One of the girls that I was walking around with was a huge fan of Wishes oh. and was sort of on the fence about whether this new thing would be better than Wishes, but uh, she loved it, so that was good. So a little more updates on capacity stuff maybe for our next show. But Jim, let's uh, let's go back and continue what we were talking about on our last Chronological Disneyland show, which was how Steven Spielberg and George Lucas ended up in the theme parks. And I think the last time we had spoken, you gave us the history of how Disney had in the mid-1960s, been sort of on top of the world with its movie fortunes to the point where in the late 70s and early 80s, they couldn't buy a hit, right? The reason they reached out to George Lucas in 1983 and basically begged him for the theme park rides to Star Wars and Indiana Jones was was how dire a situation Disney was in that point. I mean, the previous summer, summer of 1982, Disney had bet big on Tron. And it's kind of ironic, Len, because think about it. Here's Disney about to build a giant Tron-themed coaster in the Walt Disney World's uh, Tomorrowland of the Magic Kingdom. Back in the early 80s, Disney spent $17 million. This was a huge amount of money for Disney at that time. They threw all of their marketing might behind it. They wanted to turn it into this event movie. And you had to go to a theater to see this amazing breakthrough use of computer animation. We're still in the middle of the Star Wars phenomenon where the movie comes out and people are like, oh, look what you can do with uh, special effects. This is one of the reasons that movie got greenlit. There were so many giant effects pictures during this period that were making big dough. In fact, Tron comes out, costs $17 million to make, winds up at the box office only selling $33 million worth of tickets. Not by any stretch of the imagination is what Disney wanted for its investment and the effort they put behind this movie. That exact same summer, 
E.T., the extraterrestrial, comes out. Spielberg makes this for about 60% of what Disney spent. He brings it in for uh, 10, 10 million, million, 11 million. 10 million yeah. It does 10 times the business that Tron does. It, it just stateside land, $359 million. And the thing that absolutely killed the people at Disney was they almost had this movie land. Did they pass on it or they were interested in it, but uh, Spielberg sent it with someone else? Just a year or two earlier, Spielberg does 1941. It's the... The John Belushi movie? And the reason that, that Spielberg made 1941 was two years earlier, John Landis for Universal had made Animal House. One of the great movies ever made. One of Can America's I have 10,000 marbles, please? <laughs> and Landis made that for $3 million. It then goes on to make $140 million for Universal. So everybody wants to make one of these movies, including Disney. In fact, Lend, I'm giving you the name of a movie that you have to chase down. It is called Midnight Madness. This is Disney's attempt at an animal house-type, raucous, raunchy adult comedy. It, it came out in February of, of 1980. Uh, it was the second film that Disney Productions ever released to get the PG rating. The, the one before that, The Black Hole. And what's interesting about this movie is its its main claim to fame these days is it's where Michael J. Fox made his cinematic debut. You get to see a very, very young Michael J. Fox running around L.A. late at night. But anyway, Disney makes this movie, and which does so badly at the box office, it loses $4.5 million for the studio. Ouch. To be fair, I mean, no, nobody's looking to Disney to make that kind of movie. So it's like uh, if Lady Gaga were to do a country album, not <laughs> not the sort of thing that her fans expect or that fans of the other thing expect. Here's the thing, Len. They put this movie out without putting the Disney name on it. In fact, during this period, this was very frustrating for Disney. They would do things like, for example, they took Freaky Friday, the Jodie Foster, Barbara Harris movie, and they mm -hmm. actually did a test screening over at MGM and they showed it to a bunch of kids and young adults and teenagers and but for one test screening they kept the Disney name on the the front of it and everyone was like yeah that was okay on the other screening they took the Disney name off of the front of it and ran it to them and it got doubled the scores the thing is the Disney name at this point in the, the history of the studio had become a liability wow okay that's the perfect story to illustrate exactly what's happening here with with Spielberg and Lucas, then I, I totally understand now. Pivoting back to 1941, Midnight Madness for Disney loses $4.5 million. 1941, on the other hand, was so expensive that Universal and Columbia went in on it together. They each put up $20 million. All right, and so the, this $40 million comedy, which, by the way, has some amazing stuff in it. It's definitely worth checking out. It only sells $33 million worth of tickets stateside. And Spielberg is now in the doghouse because it's like two studio, two of the majors put up the money for this thing and, and lost their shirts. And, and meanwhile, George Lucas is kind of also in the doghouse at the same time because the previous summer, a summer of 79, 
he made more American graffiti. Ever seen this, Len? No, and I don't think anyone else in the world has, James. Well, that's true. Okay, because again, <laughs> same thing. The original American graffiti made in 73. Yeah, it, that's sort of how he got his name, right? That's With, it exactly. Uh, that's how he made his bones, yeah. Only cost $777,000 to produce, went on to make $140 million stateside. So it was like, but here's more American graffiti, which costs four times as much, you know, $3 million, and only sells $15 million worth of tickets. And meanwhile, here's Lucas in London. He's not directing Empire, but he's writing Hurt on it, and it's running behind schedule, and it's it's ridiculously over budget. It's it's costing one and a half times what New Hope did uh, when it was being shot in 76, 77. And so Spielberg and Lucas are kind of dealing with the fact that they're both relatively young guys at this point. This is their first real time being in kind of the doghouse. And there's a lot right. of the old studio heads that, frankly, aren't really happy with Lucas and Spielberg because they've changed the business with these summer blockbusters and their merchandising deals and all that sort of thing. So they're happy to punish them. So they're kind of getting frozen out. And and meanwhile, they have this project that the two of them really, really want to do together. And in fact, when Steven Spielberg finished making Jaws in 1975, he was exhausted and he was just so stressed out about the movie, he decided he was going to get it as far away from Hollywood as it could. He flies out to Hawaii for the opening weekend of Jaws and he's sitting on the beach making sandcastles and the hotel staff keeps running out to him with a phone where the Universal executives, oh my God, it made this much money. Oh my God, it made this much money. And so two years later, here's George Lucas, same situation. He's finished New Hope. He's hopelessly stressed out and Spielberg's like, hey, I know what to do. We're going to get on a plane together and go to Hawaii. And so it's now it's George Lucas and Steven Spielberg sitting on the beach in Hawaii making sandcastles while a guy with a phone keeps coming out and says, oh, my God, this is how much New Hope is made. And oh, my God, this is how much it's making in Boston or New York or that sort of thing. And so Spielberg and Lucas are kind of sitting each across from each other on the beach and realize we can do whatever the hell we want now. Right. I've made a hit film. You've made a hit film. And our next project could be anything we want to do. And then they look at each other, but it can't be because we both want to make a James Bond movie. And Cubby Broccoli has the rights to the Ian Fleming franchise all tied up. But they're sitting there and they're building their sandcastle. And it's like, well, couldn't it, wouldn't it be cool if we did a James Bond-like movie where we had a guy who could wear a tuxedo at night but travel the world and have these amazing adventures. And it's, it's there on the sand that they come up with the idea for Indiana Jones. But here's the thing, they invented the character, so they want a bigger chunk of the proceeds from making this movie, from bringing this movie to life that we created. Sure, because everybody knows that the people who create it also get a chunk in addition to the, the director, right? So what they're basically saying is we get, we get both, both mm -hmm. of those slices. So the idea was like, let's get Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's mm -hmm. get that up out of the ground. In 1980, after you finish Empire and after I finish working in 1941, and they're walking around Hollywood at this point with everybody like, oh yeah, you're the guy who's running over budget on Empire, and you're the guy who just lost $40 million at Columbia and Universal. Good luck. Yeah. So after going through every studio in town, where do they end up? But Disney. 
And the thing is that Spielberg, at this point, actually does have a relationship with Disney. Because remember, When You Wish Upon a Star is is featured quite prominently in Close Encounters. And likewise, anyone who's seen 1941 knows there's that wonderful scene where Robert Stack goes into a theater on Hollywood Boulevard to get away from all the crazies. He's sitting there and he's watching Dumbo. Lucas, because he wanted the Star Wars Storyteller albums to really reach kids... He mm-hmm. had those done by Disneyland Records. So it's like, look, we have a relationship with Disney. Go talk to them. Alfred Hitchcock, just the year previous, in 1979, had shut down his bungalow on the Universal lot. And Spielberg was like, God, I'd love that. I'd love to have a studio that was my home. And he's walking around the Disney lot, which, remember, looks like a college campus. And so he pitches Ron Miller about, I want a home. I want a place where I can set up all my films. You guys are the masters of visual effects. And you've done all these great animated films. And, hey, I've got ideas for animated films. And, in fact, you know, I've got an idea for what's a perfect Disney movie. It's it's about this little alien who actually gets left behind. And he friends a kid. And the kid figures out how to communicate with, you know, the aliens left behind and they come and get him and it's like disney kind of looking at spielberg and it's like you're the guy who just lost 40 million dollars just that previous christmas disney had put out the black hole which they'd spent 17.5 million in and they watched all that money disappear into a black hole because nobody went to that movie yeah so disney's at the point now where they don't have confidence in their own abilities to choose a project in management and they also don't have confidence in spielberg's ability to deliver a project on budget. So you kind of understand why at this particular moment in time, they don't partner with him. The absolute deal breaker is Spielberg mentioned that he wants to bring in John Williams to do the score because John's done all of this wonderful work for Jaws and Close Encounters. I mean, if you like that sort of, you know, American (laughs) classics thing, if that's what you're looking for in a a film score, you know, the majestic sort of symphonic sound, if, if that's what you're into, I guess. But in order to bring John Williams in, that means John gets a taste of the film. John gets a little cut of whatever that movie makes. And to Disney, that that was it. And it's like, no, no, no. Anybody who works for Disney is an employee. You don't get a cut. What the movie makes is what Disney gets. And the deal dies there. They go down the street. The last person they meet with on this project is Michael Eisner. I was going to say, didn't they go to Paramount for this? Yeah. Yes, they right. go to Paramount, and Michael Eisner listens to the pitch. Eisner's like, you know what? I like you, kid. You got Moxie. <laughs> Let's do a deal. <laughs> it winds up being the budget that Disney spent on the black hole. It's it's $17.5 million. Sure. But Eisner puts all of these terms and conditions into the deal you know, to the effect of if they go over by a day from, you know, there's a production penalty. Likewise, that Spielberg and Lucas have to cover the cost themselves. I mean, Eisner is the one who can make the deal. He has to go to the head of the studio, Barry Diller, and, and sort of sell him on this idea. And the kicker is the very next year, 1981, here comes Raiders, It makes more money than God. And here's Disney trying to follow up 
the black hole, which was their attempt at doing a Star Wars type project. And in fact, if you go back to 1974, when Disney actually started working on the black hole back when it was known mm-hmm. as Space Probe One, it was in development long before Star Wars. If it had come out, it would have been a trend-setting film. But even then, Disney is chasing the other studios because the initial description of Space Probe One, again, the early title for for the black hole, Disney described it as a disaster movie, as in we want to move oh. into the market that beside adventure and the towering inferno. And, and the airport movies. And, and That's whatnot. it, exactly. Wow. That's the problem with those films. It was it tried to follow one thing that tried to be another. That's it, it doesn't have its own identity. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, meanwhile, Tony Baxter tells a story about going to Raiders, taking a bunch of the guys from from Imagineering, and they go to a theater in Pasadena and they watch Raiders, and it's like. Oh my God, what a great attraction that would be. It's like, why can't we make movies like this anymore? And eventually, they're the ones who go to Imagineering. We have to go talk to Ron Miller. We are in this desperate situation. And again, you guys know this from what just happened with Freaky Friday. We are making movies that nobody wants to go to. The problem is that the movies are what put gas in the tank for the parks. And it's like, Tony said, look, Come into the model studio. Let me show you something. At this point, they're working on New Fantasyland for Disneyland. It was a, a redo of the 1955 version of Disneyland. What year is this? This has got to be 81, 82, because the land itself okay. starts open in 83. And okay. so Tony goes, okay, let me show you my brand new ride that we're building for the parks right now. And it was Pinocchio's Daring Journey. And he's like... Okay. This is our newest ride based on the one property we're sure of. It's a movie from 1939. Yeah, it's a a movie from 42 years ago. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's, It's one of these things where we have nothing new to draw on. And the people who are making the movies that people want to go to are Steven Spielberg or Lucas. You got to think, you know, as Disney's going through this, this isn't a situation where Universal is right down the street on both coasts. And they can pick up these directors and their ideas for a bidding war, essentially. They're, you know, that Universal is going to get in a bidding war for these. Disney basically can approach these guys and have the market largely to themselves. It's not like Knott's Berry Farm is going to go pay George Lucas and Steven Spielberg umpteen millions of dollars for their, their ride ideas. They just they can't do it, right? Absolutely. And so Lucas consents to come down from Skywalker Ranch, meets with... Ron Miller and Diane Disney Miller at Disney Family Winery, Silverado. And he agrees in principle that we can explore the idea of doing some Star Wars themed stuff. Unfortunately, of course, 83 gives way to 84, and that's the year of the, the Green Mailers and, and that sort of thing. But Ron is on the run. Somebody has to take the blame for what's happened with the Disney company, even though he's only been chairman and CEO for a year, basically, at that point. Okay. He still takes the hit. On the other hand, when Michael Eisner comes up for the job at Disney, who campaigns for him? Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Jim Henson. They all petition the Disney board to the effect of, this is a guy we like, this is a guy we've worked with previously. I mean, for example, Henson talked about how Eisner was the guy who found money early on when he was working in children's television at ABC for the two pilots for the, for the Muppet Show. This is a guy who you really want on board at Disney. So 
in the end, Miller's out, Eisner's in, and one of the very first things that Eisner does, that, you know, he comes on the job at, you know, October of 1984. By February of 1985, he's standing in front of Disney shareholders at the Anaheim conventions that are talking about the Star Wars-themed attraction that George Lucas has just agreed to make for the parks. And, of course, that turns into Star Tours. Interesting thing, in the year 85 was also the first time we heard Eisner talking about the studio attraction that he wanted to build in Florida, which, circling back to what you said about Universal, Len, remember, Universal had been trying to come to Florida for 10 years trying to get there, and, and Eisner wants to do this preemptive strike and, and get mm-hmm. Disney Studio thing up and running. Lucas doesn't initially offer up the rights to Indiana Jones. He wants to see what Disney will do with Star Wars first. And it isn't really until after Star Wars opens in January of 87 that Mm -hmm. he then goes, "Mm, let's talk Indiana Jones. But he and Spielberg co-own this, right? So is it a joint discussion between Lucas, Spielberg? and It's a three-way discussion. Just at this point, Universal is talking about bringing Spielberg in as a consultant to work on Universal Studios Florida. And Lucas keeps bringing Spielberg over to Imagineering. And so there we're talking about building a Back to the Future roller coaster attraction at this point. Not a simulator, because a simulator would be funny. Well, but but this is the thing, all right? So George brings Steven to see the Star Tours simulator, and he goes back to, at that point it wasn't Universal Creative, it was MCA Recreation Group, and goes, hey, they're doing something cool at Disney with simulators. Can, can we look into that for the Back to the Future ride? Literally, Star Tours led to Back to the Future, the ride, because Lucas could basically hold open the door for Spielberg and Imagineering. And it's like, come look at our, our stuff, Stephen. To get back to Indiana Jones, if you look at the original announcement for the studio, they talked about how they were actually going to do two stunt shows. There was going to be a comedy stunt show that was going to basically be tied to the silent era, very slapstick heavy. And then, I was going to say slapstick. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and then there was sort of a classic movie stunt show type thing. But but the idea is you had these, had these two arena shows that we need a lot of people and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It isn't till September of 1988 that we hear our first mention of the stunt show now which is one stunt show for the studio is going to be indiana jones themed that's the first time disney breaks that news and from that point forward it becomes a fascinating work in progress which we'll get to with our next installment of the chronological disney fantastic all right jim thanks for the uh, explanation there you know i i hadn't heard the story about spielberg and lucas approaching Disney for the ET stuff. So that's, uh, that's news to me. During this period, there were so many amazing what-ifs. I mean, for example, yeah. Brian Jones's wonderful biography of Jim Henson actually talks about in this same window of time, Jim Henson actually reaches out and first tries to buy the Walt Disney Company. And then when they don't go for that offers himself basically as, well, look, I could be the next Walt Disney. Why don't you hire me to do my stuff here? So many of these guys who grew up watching the Disney movies wanted in, wanted to help turn the company around because they were sad at watching Disney spin in. If you look at something like Gremlins or Goonies or, you know, Inner Space, you know, the sorts of movies that Spielberg was making through his Amblin production, 
they're second cousins to those those sorts of comedies that Disney made in the 60s, the No-Mobile, Blackbeard's Ghost, those very special effectsy based comedies. I mean, this was the thing that was making Disney crazy was that they were doing what Disney did only better. In fact, Ron Miller flat out admitted that the thing that killed him about E.T. wasn't just that the movie got away from Disney, that they could have made it, but when he saw the finished product, he said, the only thing we would have had to change to make that a Disney film was to eliminate that moment where Drew Barrymore swears. You cut out that one word, and that's a Disney movie. That's a Disney movie that did 10 times the business that Tron did. It's true. Somebody beat them with their own game, and I see that's what that's what's uh, frustrating. All right, so we'll talk about how these the stunt show and other attractions end up at the park on our next show. Yeah, and boy, the thing about the stunt show, Disney made a choice very early on that they didn't want professional stunt people. They wanted gymnasts. I was going to say amateurs, which this sounds sounds horrible, but yeah. Oh, and boy, did OSHA get involved really soon. And, and the interesting thing yeah. is that when we start to move to California and what they did with the stunt show there... That actually right. led to the Young Indiana Jones television show. But again, we'll get that next show. Also, we're going to talk about the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland because, fun fact, that's actually the ride for which I've waited the longest in line ever, four hours. Uh, so I'd like to hear what uh, what I got out of that. <laughs> Other than severe kidney damage. Okay, exactly. killer. <laughs> All right. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Don't forget we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams for Jim. This is Len. We will see you on the next show.